Welcome to the New Monastics Podcast, where we'll be discussing all aspects of the contemplative life and interspirituality in the context of modernity. On each episode, we will choose a topic to explore with one of today's leading teachers or thinkers. The New Monastics Podcast is a project of Caris Foundation for New Monasticism and Interspirituality, which is dedicated to the emergence of a newly conceived contemplative life of embodied spirituality and sacred activism. Welcome to the New Monastics Podcast. I'm Natanal, co-founder of Karis Foundation for New Monasticism and Interspirituality, and I'm one of your co-hosts. And I'm Daniel, your other co-host for the show. Today we have my friend, Reverend Matthew Wright, currently priest in charge at St. Gregory's Episcopal Church in Woodstock, New York. Matthew is a leading figure in the dialogue on contemplative life and interspirituality, and a close student of both Cynthia Bourgeau and the Christian contemplative tradition, and a dervish of American Mevlevi Sufi Sheikh, Kabir Hilminski. We'd like to center our dialogue today on the resonances and differences between the mystical traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and the overarching Abrahamic lineage to which they can be seen as all belonging. When thinking of a topic for today, I was inspired to broach this one because in addition to associations with other streams, the two of you, Matthew and Natanal, practice and are deeply engaged with all three traditions. As Natanal shared in his intro, Reverend Matthew is an Episcopal priest who also practices a form of Islamic Sufism, and Pierre Natanal, in addition to Christian practice and study, is the head of the Anayati Maimuni lineage, which combines the paths of Hasidism and Sufism, two mystical traditions that arose within Judaism and Islam, respectively. As with all of our episodes, an inner spiritual framework is latent in our understanding and approach. So, Rev. Matthew, before we launch into this specific topic, can you share with us a little bit about your understanding of interspirituality and how it informs your process and engagement with multiple traditions? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Natanal and Daniel. It's great to be with you both. And um, I draw my understanding of interspirituality very much from the work of Brother Wayne Teasdale, who said that interspirituality isn't a, an attempt to create one new religion or to synthesize all the existing religions, but a willingness to touch or taste the mystical depth of another tradition to be informed and transformed by that encounter. And so uh, I happily stand in two sacred worlds or two sacred traditions and see all of the sacred traditions as the spiritual inheritance of the human family and as holding resources, uh, rituals, community that help further human evolution and growth. And I've, I very much have been helped by Natanal's language of understanding interspirituality as the matrix against which the continued evolution of our religious traditions is happening. Yeah, thank you for speaking to it a little bit. I'd like to go a little bit deeper into it just because I think it is the kind of ground that we're having this dialogue on, even the ability to discuss various religions in comparison to each other and try to understand them holistically as a practitioner and how they might relate for us personally. It's only possible if we have some presumptions around that that's possible. And so 
I think it's kind of important to lay this groundwork. And when I was just researching a little bit for the episode, I, I heard you speaking about something called the second axial age in relation to where we're at in our current kind of religious and spiritual paradigm around the world. And that seems very much like it plays into this framework or ground that we're standing on. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to what you mean by a second axial age and how this plays into this kind of base level um, ground. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's language I've not used in a good while, so it's good to return to it. It's a framework that comes from York Cousins, who was a Roman Catholic theologian who was drawing on and carrying further the work of Carl Jaspers. And Jaspers proposed that there was a first axial age that gave rise to uh, our existing great religious traditions. There was a period when the headwaters of the great religions began forming around the globe, and it sort of represented a shift in human consciousness that allowed an opening to the transcendent. And he saw spiritual traditions before this as being more earth-centered, rooted in tribal and collective identity, tied to the cycles and seasons of nature, And with the axial shift, this opening to a a personal individual spiritual journey and uh, a sort of seeking after some kind of transcendent experience that maybe takes one more up and out of the world became an emphasis. And so an example is the Buddha leaving his wife and child in the palace to go on his quest for liberation, for enlightenment. There's this kind of breaking of ties that bind us. Cousins proposed we're entering a a new axial age where the the starting point is really an understanding of our fundamental oneness and not the sense that we don't belong in the world, but that we actually belong deeply to the world and that it's about an integration of these streams of spirituality that focus on the eminence or transcendence of God on um, it's sort of an erasing of the body-soul dichotomy, earth-heaven dichotomy, eminent transcendent dichotomy, rational intuitive dichotomy, et cetera, uh, that we're entering an integrative period and that that shifts the way we understand our religious traditions. And so it allows us to start from a fundamental framework of, of oneness. And it also kind of dissolves old models of competition and conflict between our religious traditions. And we can actually begin from a ground of cooperation and complementarity. How, how do our religions uh, all serve the same spiritual unfolding of the human family? You know, how are they all lines in that one global collective evolution? So I think Cousins framework and Jasper's framework, honestly, they're, they're in some ways a little naive and overly simplistic. But what they're trying to do is give a map that kind of teases out basic threads or currents in our spiritual traditions. And so I find it helpful as a map to to pull those threads out. But I think evolution and history are a little messier than those models might, you know, actually imply. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Much messier. Um, But they're they're helpful frameworks. And I wasn't really familiar with uh, your cousin's formulation of a second axial age, though I had uh, heard your talk on it uh, at, what was that, the Dawn of Interspirituality Conference, the first Dawn of Interspirituality Conference. That was a, a good while away, uh, like 
maybe 10 years ago now, something maybe like that. Maybe 10 years ago, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I myself have uh, followed a little bit the formulation of the philosopher Gerald Hurd. And uh, he had a book called The Five Ages of Man, now a little patriarchal in its language, but um, he had an idea that that there were periods in human consciousness, the uh, stages of maturity that we were passing through. And the axial age, as Jaspers uh, kind of sketched it out, would roughly parallel a period that we were coming into around that time uh, that Heard called, um, you know, the period of, of like the ascetic hero. And that period is characterized by a high dualism, you know, high contrast between a masculine and a feminine, and especially uh, matter and spirit. And I think something important about what um, Ewart Cousins is trying to point out with the second axial age is that we're now suffering from that model, uh, that high contrast between matter and spirit. It was part of the technology of their time to see things that way, and may have even represented a kind of advance in, um, for, for a little while. But one thing I like to point out to people is that a lot of the scriptural uh, base that we use and a lot of our mystical texts are from antiquity and then medieval, the medieval period. And we're still using them and leaning on them, but they still have this high contrast between matter and spirit. And so, you know, I think we forget how old they are. And, you know, we don't want to be critical just for that purpose, but some of that language doesn't serve us that well anymore. And, uh, even some of our best mystical texts do lean on that contrast between matter and spirit. And the real problem there is that matter is seen as somehow um, encapsulating the spirit, imprisoning the spirit. And therefore, you have to mortify, mortify the flesh, mortify the matter in order to release the spirit. And since matter has so long been associated with the feminine, well, look at how we've treated the feminine, look at how we're treating the earth. And so, we're suffering from that at this point. So, I think uh, Cousins is really right in suggesting um, that, you know, these two things need to be married again. Mm -hmm. These two things that once were separated. And realize the inherent holiness of the flesh and, and matter in general. So, I think it's just an interesting uh, way in which these two um, these two schema come together. Yeah, and uh, you know, I would argue that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are not inherently, intrinsically tied to that dualism. That dualism has infected them, but I don't think it's inherent to them. And one of the reasons I don't care a lot for Jasper's model is that it actually lumps in all three of the Abrahamic traditions together as, as first axial religions, even though cousins, not cousins, but Jasper says that the axial age was, I think, roughly 800 to um, 800 BCE to, you know, 300 BCE. And of course, Islam and Christianity both emerged well after that. And I think we see in those traditions, actually, the early 
integrative stirrings of what cousins would later call a second axial or an integrative uh, age. And I think Judaism actually never lost its earthiness, its sense of collective identity, of a shared journey as a people, uh, its connection to the cycles and seasons of, of nature and its own liturgical calendar. And so to sort of imagine these three traditions just simply as first axial religions is is not really representative of, of their nature and structure. Um, Christianity emphasizes this doctrine of the incarnation, that the divine reality actually becomes flesh, blood, bone, earth, and gives us this image of a descending God. You know, in John's gospel, there's that vision of, for God so loved the world, that the word became flesh. And so it's not a God that we have to climb up and out of the world to get to, but a God who's pouring God's self down and into the world. Um, Islam doesn't use incarnational language in the same way, but there's this beautiful Hadith Qudsi, or saying of uh, saying of God, uh, it's the divine voice speaking through the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, in which the divine voice says, I was a hidden treasure and I longed to be known, so I created or manifested or unfolded the worlds. And so God is actually knowing God's self through the materiality of, of the manifest creation. And both of those are miles away from those uh, first axial roadmaps that are up and out. And, and Judaism, I think at its heart, is also miles away from that. We have God saying, Tov, 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 uh, you know, creation is good in the Genesis creation story itself. So, yeah. Yeah, agreed. You know, thank you for for sharing that. And I just, from what you what you're saying, it does sound like my suspicion is correct, and that it's almost the interspiritual framework is is a larger container in which you both operate and engage these specific traditions. Is that a fair framing? I th- I would say uh, the interspiritual framework. Um, gives me uh, a way of organizing and understanding my own relationship to different traditions. Uh, Like, my relationship to those traditions is direct. Uh, But then when I have to uh, understand, you know, and and make sense of my engagement with more than one tradition, then interspirituality really helps me there. Uh, it doesn't come first necessarily. The direct relationships come first, but then later, like how do you make sense of it? Then it becomes very helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would echo that as well, and I would also add that interspirituality, while it may be a new term or concept, I don't think it's an entirely new experience. And I think we see interspiritual understandings present in the great sacred traditions well before we would name or label them as such. And, uh, you know, I think we can see the founders of some of these traditions as what today we would call interspiritual figures. The prophet Muhammad, of course, was integrating uh, Jewish and Christian strands into a new community. And that community was made up initially of Jews, of Christians, of uh, 
Hanifs, these unaffiliated monotheists, sort of spiritual seekers. And so some scholars like to imagine the early Muslim community itself as a radical interfaith movement. And Jesus, we can see him stepping across traditional religious boundaries in his ministry. Uh, he uses models of good faith like Romans and Samaritans, which if we were to translate that, that's pagans and heretics, right? Jesus, right. as of a Roman centurion, I found greater faith in you than in all the household of Israel, than in my own religious tradition. And then he uses this parable of the Good Samaritan, who were essentially uh, a heretical Jewish sect. They were outside the bounds of Jewish orthodoxy. They had their own version of the scriptures, their own holy mountain. And Jesus um, tells this parable of the Good Samaritan. And then at the end of these two stories or encounters, we're not told. And then the Roman centurion converted to Orthodox Judaism. Or then the Samaritan embraced Orthodox Judaism. No, they go on as a pagan and as a Samaritan. And Jesus says, look, look at them as models of what a holy life is about. And so he's pushing people outside of their religious boxes and boundaries. And then the early Christian movement itself was integrating Jews and Gentiles into one community. So we can see that as an interspiritual impulse. So I think what we think of as interspirituality is, is actually present in and inherent to the matrix of some of these traditions from the very get-go. And then we lose sight of that. But we can return back to that impulse. Uh, the story of Pentecost and the Christian scriptures, I see sometimes as uh, a vision of the interspiritual moment we're in today. This is after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and the disciples have been gathered for uh, a novena, for this, this window of prayer, um, nine days of prayer that lead to the day of Pentecost. And after this period of intensive prayer, this collective threshold is crossed in the community and we're told that the spirit charged through the room like a, a, a mighty rushing wind. And then they look and they see tongues of fire resting on each other's heads. And then they move out to bring Jesus' teachings to the world. And when they go out and start speaking, and the texts were told that everyone understood them in their own language. Uh, not that everyone began speaking the same language, but everyone understood this good news in their own language. And it's this beautiful vision of unity and diversity in which none of the diversity is erased, but a new threshold of understanding is crossed. And I think of that in our current interspiritual context, a sort of global Pentecost in that sense, in which suddenly we feel that charge of the spirit uh, through the circle of people sitting together from different traditions and we can look and the Muslim can see the, the tongue of fire resting on the head of the Buddhist and the Buddhist can see the fire resting on the, the Hindu. And we can speak in our own languages of our own traditions. And yet we understand each other. You know, there's this new understanding. Um, so I like to think of that story as a model of what interspirituality inter is about, where the diversity isn't erased or combined into some you know, bland uniformity but it's all caught up into a greater unity and diversity. It's a really good point. Um, looking back in our traditions for uh, the interspiritual context in which they arose, uh, 
And um, that's that's very much what we're looking at there, because when we look at the origins, we can see that though there might be, if we take the Prophet Muhammad, uh, uh, for instance, uh, peace and blessings be upon him, uh, as he's having his direct experience in the cave, and the angel says, Ikra, you know, recite, Ikra, recite, you know. You know, I, I know not what to recite. And and the weight is upon him, and he's having this intense experience. And then when it's done, he, he doesn't know how to contextualize the experience he just had. And so he runs from the cave and runs to his wife. And I, I find this just a, such a beautiful story that he, you know, throws his head in his wife's lap and says, cover me, cover me. He wants to be held and comforted by his wife. It's just such a beautiful thing. And and he's afraid of, of the experience he's had. He doesn't know what it means. So we can have these direct experiences that we don't necessarily know how to interpret. And here's where an interspiritual matrix becomes important. She says to him, we'll go to see my cousin Warika. Warika is a Christian. <laughs> and so they go to see Warika, and he tells him what's happened, and Warika says, oh, the great Namus has come upon you, you know, the same uh, kind of, you know, uh, spiritual baptism, as it were, that, that came upon Moses and that came upon Jesus, and now it's come upon you. He contextualizes it for him, and now he has a way of understanding what has happened to him in his direct experience. And so, that's very much what I was saying about trying to make sense of my own life <laughs> Not that these are parallel examples, um, but it like it, it gave a context, and that and that came from the interrelationship between traditions. We we witness one another, and and we give context and meaning to one another's experiences, and so that's that's an amazing example. Uh, also, you know, in the stories. When, you know, when the Prophet Muhammad, you know, before he's the Prophet Muhammad, and he's, you know, he's just a 12-year-old boy, and he's on the caravan um, with his uncle, Abu Talib, and they're in their way into Syria, which, where there's, uh, you know, Christianity is, is dominant. It's a Christian monk, a cave-dwelling monk, who witnesses the prophetic potential of the boy. You know, this uh, monk, I think he's called Bahira in the tradition. So, you know, again, it's, here's, here's traditions informing one another and even supporting. So, I think it, it is a great, great way to look at it. Like, the, the word interspirituality might be new, but the matrix in which we learn from and understand one another is not new. And in the Western Academy, we have operated under this illusion of these separate, finalized, crystallized traditions that must be kept sort of reified and pure, that there is such a thing as a pure Christianity and a pure Islam and a pure Judaism. And we cry out against what we call syncretism. You know, we don't want syncretism. And the truth is, all of the great traditions began as some form of syncretism. Uh, you know, the Buddha is reforming within his Hindu milieu, right? That he's growing a, a new tradition outside of that context and, and within that context. 
Jesus is a reformer within his Jewish milieu, um, and Judaism itself continued to evolve and absorb elements from other traditions. You know, during the Babylonian exile, Judaism absorbs elements of, of Zoroastrian angelology, and, you know, the traditions are continually actually interacting with, dancing with, and evolving in relationship to each other throughout history. And then we um, say, okay, but now there are these clean lines between them, and, and they're separate and must remain so forever. Uh, but they never actually have been separate in that sense, and there never have been these neat, clean lines. And I think, too, there's a little bit of individuation in there, um, and maybe a lot, actually. You know, the, the, the traditions that are closer in relationship to one another tend to start to um, try to individuate against one another. And so... It seems the more they have in common, the more they want to define themselves against and different and as different. Um, <laughs> had an interesting experience once. Uh, you know, I'm also an iconographer. You know, and and at one time I did a large icon icon of um, of the Shiva Nataraja. You know, in a, in a very large one, and and a friend of mine uh, loved that painting, and he. And he had started a small um, Buddhist retreat center, Tibetan Buddhist retreat center, and, and, and he loved the painting, he just loved it, and he hung it in his retreat center, even though it was different than all the tankas, you know, that all represent Buddhism. It was just, just he just loved the painting. And, and while you might see among uh, various Tibetan Buddhist teachers a very willing embrace of talking about Jesus. You know, oh, let's have a dialogue between Buddhism and Christianity. You don't so often see a dialogue between Buddhism and Hinduism. And um, a uh, particular Rinpoche came through that retreat center and was highly upset at seeing the Shiva <laughs> hanging in there. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, and, you know, kind of insisted, oh, you need to cover that, you need to get rid of that, and so on. Well, you know, who's the cl close brother there? You know, maybe you, you, can, you can have a, a dialogue with, with Christianity, but when you have to own your roots, it's more uncomfortable. Or it's uncomfortable if, say, people in the United States can't easily distinguish between a Buddhist tanka you know, in a Hindu uh, murti. And if they can't easily tell the difference, now you're, again, a tradition trying to define yourself against another. And so, we do see this kind of uh, sibling rivalry. <laughs> um, and, and I think that has a lot to do with it, the, the need to individuate. Maybe just picking up on that thread of sibling rivalry, uh, it's a good place to kind of zoom in on this specific question of the potential of viewing the three traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam as a part of an Abrahamic lineage with a shared mythological history and monotheism, ethics, etc. And so that is what I'd like to discuss today or get into a little bit deeper. But before we, we do that, I 
just want to be honest about that. That is a presumption that I'm coming to the dialogue with that. It's a, a valid activity to characterize these three traditions as belonging to an Abrahamic lineage. And that's my own bias. And so just to start down this road, I wanted to ask if you share that presumption and in what way do you see an Abrahamic lineage as existing? In what way is it valid? In what way is it maybe not? And so if you could just speak a little bit to this general idea of is there some kind of familial relationship between these three traditions that is like you're speaking to with Buddhism and Hinduism a little bit closer to each other than maybe just the shared inheritance of all the wisdom traditions of the world. What is particular about the relationship between these three traditions? Well, there's absolutely a relationship because we all we share the same prophetic history and lineage. Just in saying Abrahamic, well, all three traditions trace themselves back to the experience of Abraham and uh, share and recognize much of the same scriptures. Of course, Christians share uh, Hebrew scripture with the Jewish tradition, and the Quran itself speaks of the Torah, the Psalms, the gospel, uh, and recognizes those as, as authentic revelations. And so the traditions are absolutely swimming in the same lifeblood. But as Natanel said, they have uh, individuated in relation to and, and often opposition to each other. They've defined themselves against each other in the same way that, you know, an adolescent may push back against a parent as they're going through that, that period of individuation. And, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that for the moment. There's more I want to say about that, but I see Natanel, uh, a thought bubbling in your mind. <laughs> I don't know. No, I just, uh, I'm uh, really enjoying the overlap between us about, you know, how we think about things and, and and yes, um, you know, they're all Abrahamic uh, in the sense that they all claim Abraham, you know, Avraham, Abraham, Ibrahim. Uh, they all claim Abraham. And then we use uh, that, that claim, that common claim, as a, like a convenient category. Now, well, okay. And and I think that that's been a uh, that's been a positive assertion. That is us trying to say well, no. We have common roots and common understanding, and we don't need to fight. So I think when people started to talk about Abrahamic religions, it was uh, um, one a convenient category, but also an attempt to make peace and and to look at what we share. And when you're looking at what you share, then you're often going back to the deeper roots, um, because the more proximate thing is often the thing that's uh, being defined as new or maybe not acceptable. You know, uh, it, the Quran uh, will look at how, you know, at first a prophet is rejected. So, um, you know, because the the Quran. Uh, speaks and addresses Muhammad's own concerns. Um, it's reflecting current moments. 
So sometimes it's reflecting the fact that he's being rejected. And then, then we get examples that say, no, look, they also rejected Jesus because he wasn't Moses, you know, and certainly Moses was rejected because he wasn't somebody else. And so those are the proximate things. So we reach back to, to Abraham. Uh, interesting that we don't reach back to Malkitsedek, <laughs> who is the ordainer of, of Abraham, and that's a whole interesting thing to think about, too. Um, and, and so, some people like to think of Malkitsedek as the, um, as the, the kind of founder of, uh, of a universalism, a universal spiritual path, which is an interesting way to think, because he's a very mysterious figure. But that's basically what I do think. I think um, uh, it is a convenient category, but it's one that represents a, a noble ideal of relationship. And myself, I guess I, I do believe in the Abrahamic lineage. And I do believe in an Abrahamic transmission even. And, and not only because I want to, <laughs> though, though I won't exclude that. Um, as a historian of religion, I like some of the connections I see. Um, uh, even with our, our more esoteric spirituality, our contemplative traditions, we see connections. And my favorite connection is, you know, those people that would today we call the Essenes, probably, you know, uh, from the, uh, the Latin Essene and uh, the Greek Esaioi. And, but deeper than that, they were probably called in Aramaic, the Hasya, the Hasidim. And and so these group of Jews living a contemplative spirituality, a little bit outside of society, uh, almost monastic, clearly influence what comes next. And not long after that, we oh, we have its possible influences on Christianity. But then we also have the desert parents, the abbas and amas of the desert, and living a certain kind of spirituality, and which we have to remember persisted throughout the Middle East, uh, even into the time of the early years of Islam, there's still these Abbas and Amas out in the desert. And one of my favorite stories is of uh, one of the early great masters of Sufism, who, who is in various lineages, Ibrahim ibn Adam, um, reported that that the marifa, the, the gnosis, the experiential wisdom, came upon him in an encounter with Father Simeon. <laughs> so, he has his great enlightening experience in an encounter with a Christian desert monastic, you know, or a desert contemplative. If that's not an, a deep esoteric lineage, I don't know what is, from, from esoteric Judaism to esoteric Christianity to... Mm -hmm to what becomes esoteric Islam. And so, that's very important to me, to, to know that kind of lineage and feel that connection for, for me personally. So, you know, I'll stand by that. <laughs> and of course, the Prophet Muhammad was deeply influenced by the practice of the desert Abbas and Amas, the practice of cave retreat, 
And he would regularly go to the cave on Mount Hira to spend time in contemplative retreat. And I think it's it's legitimate to assume he learned that practice of cave retreat from the desert Christian practice of cave retreat. And so there's a, a direct lineage continuation in that as well. And some of the practices that today we associate with Sufism, like um, zikrullah, zikr, remembrance of God, as a form of uh, vocally chanting the names of God that sometimes takes the form of a circle dance, uh, that's not a practice that we associate with most of Western Christianity, this idea of spiritual students gathering and dancing and chanting in a circle. But when we go back to early Christian texts, we actually see practices like this. So, for example, there's a wonderful text called the Acts of John from the second century of the Christian era, in which the author recounts the scene of the Last Supper. And in the canonical Gospels, we're told that before Jesus and the disciples went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, they gathered and sang a hymn, but the scene isn't completed. Well, in the Acts of John, the scene is completed, and Jesus actually invites the disciples to form a circle and to take hands, and he stands in the center of the circle, and he sets them in a circle dance. And as they begin dancing around him in a circle, he asks them to answer amen unto him, and they begin chanting in response the word amen. And he begins singing these beautiful lines about the reciprocity at the heart of life. Uh, he says, I would eat and I would be eaten. Amen. I would bear and I would be born. Amen. I would wash and I would be washed. Amen. Uh, and then he goes on and speaks of the joys and sorrows of life. I would pipe, dance you all. Amen. I would mourn, lament you all. Amen. And he goes on like this as they dance around him. And this dance is happening in the context of the sharing of what Christians today call the Eucharist, the Last Supper. And we can imagine that if Christians were writing about chanting and circle dancing in the context of the Eucharist in the second century, then Christians were very likely chanting and circle dancing in the context of the Eucharist in the second century. Uh, now, that is very recognizable to anyone practicing in a Sufi community today as, as a common form of worship within that tradition. It's not recognizable to many Christians, and yet we can see early Christians writing about that form in a period that predates Islam and the emergence of the Sufi tradition. So, we can assume that those forms of worship stayed alive in the Near East and remained alive within Islam, but perhaps they were inherited from the Jewish context, from the Christian mystical context. So, there's another thread of continuation there in, in those forms of practice and worship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So, in as much as it is valid to talk about an Abrahamic lineage, I'm wondering if either both of you could just speak a little bit to the particular character of that lineage. What makes it up? What is its DNA? If we look at it as almost a family of traditions or sibling traditions, what is the characteristics that define the practice and the, even the theology and 
Yeah. What is the particular nature of these traditions maybe in juxtaposition with some other traditions that we might be aware of? What makes these particular, what is, what do they share that not all traditions share? You know, the first thing that jumps to mind for me is the rhythm of daily prayer that cuts across the three traditions. In my own practice of Christianity, uh, fixed hour prayer is a really primary practice. And the early Christian tradition inherited this from Judaism. And there were, of course, fixed times of prayer within the Jewish tradition. And we see the disciples of Jesus in the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament. Uh, we're told, for example, they went up to the temple for it was the hour of prayer. And so we see the disciples of Jesus actually continuing uh, a system of fixed hour prayer in which you're, you're essentially sanctifying the day through this, this rhythm of praise. And the early Christian tradition picked that up and continued it very early on. And we see most Christians participated in at least daily morning and evening prayer. And we even have in the letters of some of the bishops of the early church, they talk about the need to perform an ablution before the prayers. And they say one should wash their hands and their face before entering the, the time of fixed hour prayer. And of course, that will be recognizable to anyone who knows the Islamic tradition, performing an ablution before prayer. And that rhythm of prayer was cultivated very highly within what became the Christian monastic tradition. And it developed all the way up to seven or eight times a fixed hour prayer a day. And as the monastic tradition, which initially sort of separated from mainstream Christianity, as Christianity fused with empire, monastics, they moved out into the deserts to keep a, a more pure tradition alive. And then eventually monasticism moved back into the centers of power, back into urban life and infused the tradition at large. And at this point, the practice of fixed hour prayer had become so elaborate that the common folk no longer felt that it applied to them. Um, it was really just for the priests and the monks who could actually, one, read and use the Psalter and use, uh, you know, text-centered forms of prayer and who had the time to pray all these various times. Um, but in the early tradition, that rhythm wasn't just reserved for the monks and the priests. It was actually used by the whole community. Uh, and it wasn't my personal private prayer. It was really a sense of corporate prayer. We're all stopping at these same times to pray together. And in my own Anglican Christian tradition, at the time of the Reformation, Thomas Cramner, who made the first Book of Common Prayer, uh, he wanted to restore that rhythm to the wider Christian tradition. And he simplified the seven or eightfold daily office or liturgy of the hours into two main times of prayer again, morning and evening prayer. And in the Episcopal Church today, um, a fourfold rhythm of prayer has been restored. So we have daily morning and evening as the primary times of prayer and then noonday prayer and Compline or night prayer. And um, in most Anglican traditions, it's understood as binding on clergy to pray at those fixed times, but uh, recommended and, and normative for all the faithful to pray at those times. Now, in the Western Christian world at the time of the Reformation, that idea of fixed hour prayer largely dropped 
out of the tradition because it was seen as a work. And Martin Luther emphasized, you know, um, we're saved through faith alone. And this idea that, that somehow these fixed times of prayer were works by which you were earning your salvation. Um, and so they fell by the wayside. But the tradition never understood them as works. They were just the times that sanctified the day, that offered praise to God. Uh, so that, to me, that rhythm of prayer, and particularly in the Christian tradition, its rootedness in psalmody. We actually chant or recite the book of Psalms throughout the day at those fixed times. Uh, that is so deeply a part of my understanding and experience of Christianity, both praying alongside monastic communities. I live alongside an Episcopal Benedictine monastery, and they chant the Psalms four times a day. Um, but just in the wider Anglican and Episcopal tradition, we have this rhythm of fixed hour prayer. And so when I uh, encountered that in Islam, it was very familiar to stop at these fixed times during the day. And I think the brilliance in the Islamic tradition is that it made the prayers non-text-centered. Uh, the Christian form, you really have to have a book of Psalms unless you've memorized all 150 Psalms, and you have to have some scripture readings, etc., to, to really engage the practice. In Islam, you just needed to learn a few short surahs of the Quran that you could chant from memory, and you needed to stand and bow and prostrate. Um, of course, bowing and prostrating also were in the Christian practice as well. And in Christian prayer, we still, at the end of a psalm, you recite the Gloria Patri, uh, glory to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as you say that, you bow at the waist, a deep, full bow, just as one bows in the practice of Salat. Um, prostration has largely dropped out of contemporary Christian practice, but in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they also still uh, will prostrate in daily practice. So, um, so in my experience, those are really essential prayer rhythms that characterize all three traditions, but that have been expressed in their own unique ways. Yeah, I think that's an important way of looking at it. I don't think I'd have thought of that, uh, but it, I think it goes to illustrate the first thing that I did think of as characterizing Abrahamic traditions, and it's an emphasis on a relationality, a relationship with God, and the importance of that, that, you know, a relationship to a, you know, between an I and a you, and and having that relational language, that you language, and, and feeling um, and desiring a response. And to give, to give a place to something that is very natural for a human being, which is the need to express. Um, and to express something that is not necessarily information as such. It, it is something that has to come out, you know, I remember, you know, the clever, you know, because I'm a classroom teacher at a university, you know, you, you always get the clever student, you know, who might ask the question, well, what does God need our prayers for? If God is God, God knows, why do we have to pray those prayers? And, and I, and I said, well, God may not need to hear our prayers, but we need to pray them because it's it's an aspect of our being to need to express out and even to feel responded to and so I, I think this is a strong aspect of Judaism Christianity and Islam uh, 
Um, and that relationality expresses a number of different ways, um, including if we're going to categorize religions this way, which is sometimes helpful and sometimes not. Um, you can see, even though, uh, you know, a kind of rebellious acceptance of other religious traditions as they came over, like rebellion was playing a part <laughs> in, in how we took on other traditions as we were rejecting the ones of our own culture here in America, at least. Um, and, and we tended to um, celebrate the ideals of the traditions that were new to our culture and then compare them with the realities <laughs> of the religions that we knew. Um, my teacher would call it uh, comparing their ought to our is, or our is to their ought, you know, and as a, it's a bad way to do dialogue. <laughs> but um, when you do look, you do see that these traditions that have emphasized relationality have strong traditions of giving charity and emphasizing charitable works and taking care of society. And that is not so strong uh, in the non-Abrahamic traditions. And where you do see it, say, in India, it's often because of Islam. You did not see the same kind of charitable giving. And, and this is not this is not a criticism. It's just the way certain traditions developed, with an emphasis on, um, you know, when you talk about the Maya all the time, you know, the illusory nature of existence. Well, it, you can get into a mode of of not trying to change that. <laughs> it's just a judgment that these this is illusory, and therefore it can't change. But within Abrahamic traditions, even though we fail at this often, there is an ideal of taking care of society and trying to improve it. There is some sense of uh, trajectory and evolution that things can change over time. And so, you know, that, that's part of the character and part of the contribution on the planet of these traditions. So, sometimes when people are are criticizing the existing Abrahamic traditions that they've known and rebelling against them, it becomes all critique and there's no gift. But one of the great gifts of these traditions is that they really did, they have high ideals around taking care of society and making sure um, that the less fortunate can benefit from a redistribution of wealth. I know, a terrible thing to say. <laughs> you know, how dare I? It suggests such an idea, communism. <laughs> or but, the year of Jubilee. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, God forbid. Uh, so, but coming back to prayer, and that is a great connector. I mean, the prayer itself and the relationality of that, but even our forms are connected to one another. And, and they're really interesting uh, historical... Um, not only historical connections, but then that tendency to try to individuate is there too. Like, uh, Judaism had full prostration. Most Jews don't know this anymore. Now, only, only a historian of you know, Judaism will really know, had full prostration. And when did they stop doing it? 
when the Christians took it over. Uh, and then there was a need to, like, differentiate. And, and then later on, fascinating, um, the son of Maimonides, the great Jewish philosopher, a great philosopher anywhere, he's, he's quoted by Thomas Aquinas, you know, uh, and everyone. Um, the son of the great uh, Jewish philosopher Maimonides, Avraham Maimuni, reinstituted a prostration within his Jewish community, within his own, well, he didn't reinstitute it for the Jewish community, he wasn't imposing it, but within his own private prayer space, his majlis, um, they did full prostration, and when criticized for it, he and he was criticized for copying the Muslims. And he said, no, we had full prostration. Uh, however, interestingly, he argued that they're doing it right, uh, which is to, to touch the seven points to the ground, <laughs> which, which may not be historically correct for, for how Jews did it originally. But fascinating relationship to prostration there and why it went away. And, and then now in another cultural context, he's being criticized because Muslims do it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there, there are a lot of great stories about why we have different prayer times and, and how they're shared. Um, and they're pretty important, even around the numbers of them. So in Judaism, it's Shachrit. Uh, Mincha and Mariv, those are the three prayer times. Uh, Mincha, the middle one, being called the gift, because it's kind of hard to pray in the middle of the day. <laughs> um, and then in and then in Islam, there, uh, it's a question: How many times a day did did the Prophet really pray? And um, and and there are wonderful stories about how he's in discussion with the other prophets in a visionary experience about how many times we, uh, Muslims should be praying. So it's it is a wonderful connector for us between the traditions. If you're enjoying the episode, please consider subscribing to our Patreon to help support the production of the podcast. Subscriptions begin at $1. All patrons receive access to bonus content, curated resources, and exclusive patron events, including live Q&As. For more information, please check out the Patreon link in the show notes, and thanks for listening. So yeah, that, that was lovely, uh, uh, the deep dive into um, some of these topics, but I just want to also maybe rapid fire cover some other topics in terms of just naming these kind of shared resonances, right? So one thing we've already named is a, is a shared mythological history in terms of Abrahamic lineage, as well as a lineage of prophets. There's a shared language, right? There's Semitic language family that has kind of the roots of all of these traditions, a shared geography is kind of all happening in what we know of now as the Middle East. Um, monotheism right a conception of a single god help me out here you got y'all are the experts but <laughs> i just want i just want a name because i would it's great to go into the specifics but i also just for maybe people who are a little bit less familiar what are these kind of large category similarities that kind of form the family tradition if you will hmm. 
of course the the one god question is the one that 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 the jewish and islamic traditions accuse the christian tradition of not holding to sometimes <laughs> um that might be an interesting thing just to to touch on a little bit but i was thinking about as Antonio was talking about the relational quality of these three traditions, that they really are about the cultivation of a sense of relationship or intimacy with God, with the divine reality, and that those fixed times of prayer are only for the sake of cultivating that connection, just in the same way, okay, well, you can say you have a relationship with your partner, but if you don't ever actually sit down and eat meals together or have a date night occasionally, like, are you cultivating the relationship? And so those fixed hour times, you know, are actually just for the sake of cultivating that connection in a very intentional way. Um, but it reminded me of what a Roman Catholic monk, uh, Father Bruno Barnhart, called in our traditions the key of relationality and the key of identity. And he said our traditions play with these two keys. And the key of identity is when we recognize our deep oneness with the divine and you know like al-halaj the great sufi mystic who said an al-haq i am truth he recognized his identity with the divine reality and then there's the key of relationality in which we cultivate the i thou relationship and that both of these relationships are present in all three of the traditions um they're they're affirmed across the the board and we often think of the eastern traditions as maybe cultivating more fully the key of identity and you know non-dual traditions like zen or vedanta etc but it's very much in uh, the judeo-christian islamic uh, lineages as well and what it called to mind in relation to the trinity is the way that ramon panikar who's one of the great interspiritual pioneers like to play with this and he said that if we look at the ways that Jesus talks about the divine human relationship in the Gospels, it opens up something very interesting. So, he just notes the kinds of phrases Jesus uses for this relationship. So, sometimes Jesus says things like, the Father is greater than I, or God is greater than I. Uh, this sense of the beyondness, the transcendence of the divine. But then there are other points in the Gospels where Jesus says something like, I am in God and God is in me, or I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So, this sense of interabiding. So, we've shifted from a hierarchical relationship with the divine to a relationship of equality, of maybe lover, beloved, I am in God, God is in me. Uh, it's really changed the playing field. But then Jesus also says, I and the Father are one or I and God are one. There's that key of identity, of, of pure identity. And what Ramon Panikar said was that this is actually the early glimmers of what the Christian tradition will develop as the doctrine of the Trinity. There's that beyondness of the God who is greater, and then there's the sort of um, interabiding, incarnate, uh, I'm in God, God is in me, relational uh, reality, and then I and God are one, that pure unit of reality. And so, one way some Christian mystics talk about the Trinity is uh, God beyond us, God beside us, God alongside us in the relational experience, and then God within us. 
And that breaks it out of the way I think a lot of Christians think of it as two men and a bird. This is what Sandra Schneider said. She, she liked to say that the Trinity is not two men and a bird. And we've often depicted it that way. And it rightly, you know, rankles Jews and Muslims who say like, that looks a lot like some kind of polytheism. And in Christian iconography, you actually get God the Father is an old man with a beard. God the Son is Jesus, you know, being crucified. And then the Holy Spirit as a bird flapping its wings above the two of them. But when we take it into this experience that Jesus had of the God within, the God beside, and the God beyond, um, then we can start to talk across traditions. Uh, so Panikkar liked to talk about homeomorphic equivalencies, this big term he coined that was, what are the places of resonance across the traditions? We can try to dialogue at the doctrinal level, and a Christian can say to a Muslim, well, where's the Trinity in your religion? And the Muslim will be left saying, well, it's not. But the Christian could say, where is the experience of God beyond you in your religion? Where's the experience of uh, God beside you in your religion or the experience of God within you in your religion. And now we're talking at the level of shared experience rather than formulated doctrine. And, and it's a much richer dialogue. Um, but we see in, in that framing those two, those two keys, maybe a spectrum actually of, of the relational and the experience of total union and identity. And Panikar like to say that 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 wasn't a ladder. Often we flip it into a ladder. There's the God who is greater than I is like kindergarten spirituality. The God who's in me and I am in God is, you know, adolescent, more mature. And then I and God are one is like really grown up spirituality. And he said, no, this isn't a, a ladder. It's a circle. And we all move through these experiences over the course of a life. And in the course of one period of prayer, we need to cry out to the God who is greater than us, who is beyond us. We need the experience of lover beloved, the God who is intimate with us. And then we need to be the drop that merges in the ocean, the God who is one with us. And, um, and we need all of them all of the time. And I think all three of these traditions actually do cultivate all three of those, those experiences. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I like the way that you, you framed it. Um, of course, of course, you know, this is a matter of emphasis. If we're talking about Abrahamic traditions and non-Abrahamic traditions, you know, so-called Eastern traditions, and, and those terms are losing relevance, Eastern and Western, and I don't think that we'll use them past a certain point. But when we look, we're looking at emphases. Um, and yes, you know, over, you know, in the Eastern religions, as they were called, there is an emphasis on identity, you know, that I identity with with uh, an absolute, and that doesn't mean that that they don't have rel relationality, and but it has it's a little more of a minority emphasis. You know, there are certainly bhakti traditions and and relational. Uh, poetry and prayer traditions there. And over on this Abrahamic side, I think you really can point to a lot of emphasis on relationality, um, which we then have to go back often and point out how that's given a specific meaning by the identity that is present. And now we're trying to emphasize that a little more, that you know that is present in, in our traditions. Uh, that are Abrahamic. 
I think, you know, maybe we would call those our, our Tawheed traditions. So there's a great emphasis within Islam on Tawheed. And, and that the idea is that Tawheed is what actually connects Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, because that is the basic message that all the prophets have brought to all the peoples of the earth at different times, the message of Tawheed, which is unity or oneness. And in this case, the oneness of God. And the more difficult relationship to work out has been to Christianity. <laughs> I studied with a Quran scholar when I was in college, um, wonderful scholar, uh, Dr. Alfred Welch. And uh, he he told me a joke after class one day. He says, uh, he says uh, yes, uh, Muslims think Christians can't count. <laughs> you know, two men and a bird. <laughs> right. Equal three, you know, not one. And if we're traditions of oneness, you know, uh, monotheistic traditions, you know, how does that work out for you? And there's you even see this in in the Quran. Um, trying to um, define Islam as a pure monotheism. Uh, so Surat al-Ikhlas, you know, is 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 maybe the most classic example of that, where it says, you know, um, Allah, uh, indestructible refuge, not begetting, not begotten, none comparable, and not begetting. He says, didn't give birth to a child. There's no no son, and that wasn't just Christianity. They were they were also trying to say that God doesn't have daughters because there was the notion of the the banat Allah, the you know the daughters of Allah that was uh, an, a a notion in pre-Islamic Arabia, and that there might be a pantheon, and so it's defining this kind of unity. Um, and so it's it's really an interesting discussion. Um, what what do we mean by unity? And uh, I think Matthew did a great job of, of. We do have to do some work of of understanding what the relationality of the three are <laughs> to the one, and how these are aspects of experience, or perspectives on the one, and. Um, but the traditions themselves have been doing it. You can look back and 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 go because Judaism, you know, in in Hebrew religion is the 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 elder of of these traditions, um, and so sometimes it's seen by those who critique as the most flawed in this regard. You know, like the God is you know very heavy handed and seems to be you know king on a mountain and and uh, laying down commandments. But it's there too. The identity is there too. Uh, the verses in Malachi, um, uh, I, God, have not changed. This becomes very important for Kabbalah and very important for understanding the, uh, that, that God does not change, is not changeable, and before or after are not even categories that apply to God. Also, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. These these various things, statements about God that come from the prophets establish God's transcendence. So it's there too. It's not just a, 
you know, a super being God in in the so-called Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. The, the identity uh, aspect exists throughout these traditions. Sorry, that was long. <laughs> no, that was that was wonderful. Um, and uh, you know, in the Quran, the Quran references those who take Jesus and Mary as gods beside God, and it talks about those uh, who make God the third of three, which is literally a definition of polytheism. We're talking about three different gods, and of course, no Orthodox Christian talks about God being the third of three, but a a dynamic, you know, threeness within God. And um, and so when we look at the texts, actually every position refuted by the Quran regarding this sort of um, tritheism would be refuted by Orthodox Christians as well. Yeah. None of those definitions are actually, you know, accepted by the Orthodox Christian tradition. So there's actually a lot of room for dialogue there. And this understanding that the Quran was uh, fighting against uh, this sort of pagan notion of, uh, you know, divinities like Zeus copulating with a, a human woman and producing a demigod, you know, those kinds of things where God is literally begetting a child. But the begetting language comes from the Jewish tradition. We have in the Psalms, God saying of David, you are my son, this day I have begotten you, you know, and that language carries over into Christianity. And uh, Shams, the teacher of Mevlana Rumi, he says in his Makalat that, that when Christians use this language of, of begetting, they're clearly not using it in the way that the Quran is, is rejecting. You know, it isn't the literal begetting of a child um, in some, you know, quasi-physical kind of way. And I think what I found very helpful in bridging these understandings is to understand that when Christian doctrine talks about a oneness and a threeness in the divine, that it is not the numerical one or the numerical three. That when we say God is one, it isn't the one that falls in a sequence between zero and two. It is oneness, the oneness that contains the whole sequence of numbers. And likewise, when we say God is three, it isn't the numerical three that falls between two and four. It is manyness. It is dynamism. And so to say God is one and three is to say God is oneness and manyness. God is silence and sound. God is stillness and movement. You know, it, it holds those two poles in a unity. Um, so I think there's real room for dialogue when we can open the doctrines up in that kind of way, that they don't actually have to be seen as inherently canceling each other out. Yeah, I, I think it's in... Um in the Patach Eliyahu, in the Tikkuni Zohar, and this this little appended piece in the Zohar, this is, uh, you know, God is one and not in number, uh, defining against the, this this notion um, that we we mean something else by that. This is another kind of category. And uh, you know, growing up uh, in the evangelical Christian. Um, Yes, it was very common uh, to think in your mind of Jesus as God, and and there's a lot of criticism around that. Like, oh, you know, especially maybe from from a from a, a Muslim perspective. I've often heard this from young Muslim converts getting very upset about this. But again, that that conception, it was like, well, the Holy Spirit is God too. You know that 
it's it's just naming, you know, a means of address, you know, a way of relating. But you're you're relating to God. And that may not be worked well worked out theology in the mind of, you know, a, a, even even me as a young evangelical, but upon, you know, reflection I could see how I understood that. And so again, that's not about number. Um and uh, you know another thing that came up for me while you were while you were talking was um, this this goes the other way too because uh, you know Hindus were often looked at as idolaters from from an Abrahamic perspective especially you know in the relationship to Islam because that was the the more direct relationship Muslims and, and Hindus were in you know in conflict at a certain point but. Uh, I remember seeing a wonderful old documentary, it's probably on YouTube now, called The, the Long Search. Um, and I think um, the religion scholar Ninian Smart was behind this, uh, this documentary, The Long Search. And I remember seeing this uh, footage of a small village in India where uh, they'd made a very wonderful murti, uh, I don't know if it was Saraswati or whoever it might have been, but they'd made the murti of clay and and there was all the puja around it, all the apparent worship. And then, uh, very much like in a Catholic procession, you know, it was put on, uh, you know, on a platform that was attached to staves and then they paraded it through and everybody worshipped and they paraded it right into the lake. <laughs> and let it sink. And the person who was the commentator on this said, now who would do that to what they believed was God? And so, you know, is the Murti God? Yes and no. You know, and so, you know, what what do we mean by idolatry, you know, when we're looking from the other lens and, and these many gods now, there was a sophisticated notion there. Whether those villagers could articulate it well, that sophisticated notion was still present about a, a unity that was not about number and not even about the location and the material substance of that murti. Mm. I have a thought there. I'm trying to find it again. <laughs> uh, oh. My own Sufi sheikh will sometimes say that the equivalent to the multiplicity of gods in Hinduism is the 99 names of Allah in Islam, that the many divinities within the Hindu tradition, when understood as facets or faces of Brahman, they become then the 99 names or qualities of God. And so they're not idols in the sense that uh, Islam, you know, stands in opposition to and that even when the Prophet Muhammad sort of smashes the different tribal deities and images in Mecca, that he's smashing the separation that these deities brought about. You know, these deities are reinforcing tribal division and sometimes regressive practices like female infanticide. And so to smash the deities, it isn't um, some exclusionary statement. It's actually intended to unify the people, that there is one divinity that's revealed itself, you know, and to every people. And so Tawheed that you're 
bringing us back to Natanal, this notion of oneness, my own sheikh, Kabir Helminski, I've heard him translate the Shahada, La ilaha illallah, there is no God but God, as La ilaha, there is no God, period. That separate character, that old man in the sky that you call God, La ilaha, doesn't exist. Il Allah, there's only the field of oneness we call Allah. Um, and Jesus in the Gospels, particularly John's Gospel, invites everyone into that experience of oneness. He prays on the night before he dies, may they all be one as you and I are one. So he's inviting everyone into the experience of divine human unity that he experiences. And what Christians often have done, uh, much to our detriment, we've sort of installed this glass ceiling and we say, okay, Jesus gets to say, I and the Father are one. But his students don't get to say that. Only he gets to say that. No one else gets to say that. Uh, but when we do that, we negate his own prayer. May they all be one as you and I are one. Uh, you know, he explicitly invites us into that unitive experience. And I think the reclaiming of contemplative prayer in the Christian tradition, largely through its encounter with the so-called Eastern traditions, has helped reopen that door into the unit of experience that was always there and that's stated so explicitly by Jesus. Um, and that is, is the heart of the Shahada and the heart of, um, of the Shema, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I like the, that way of characterizing the Asma al-Husna, you know, the 99 beautiful names of God. You know, the, uh, I think uh, my own teacher, Rib Zaman, um, he 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 had a way of talking about these things as as um, well. I've already used the phrase like as a means of address. Uh, if God were a government building, <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> but if God were a government building, and you go inside and you like you need the forms for this, and you look at the you know the uh, labeling on the doors, you know, well here's the door for this. It's like having the right phone number for for the the kind of thing you need. So, so, how are you going to address God when you need mercy? So you speak to God the Merciful. You know, if you're at the beginning of something, well, that's when you address Ganesh. You know, the Lord of Obstacles and the Lord of Beginnings. Yeah, and so you know, it, it's all about. Um, uh, reference. Because we are relational beings, uh, having the right reference helps unlock the right mode of expression and and the in, even the intensity of the ask. You know, what are we trying to connect with? Well, you have to connect. And, well, you better have the right phone number is a little bit the idea. Um, but around idolatry, one of the best stories I know is of Reb Zalman's own master, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, Yosef Yitzhak Schneerson of Lubavitch. And he came into his leadership at a very difficult time in Russia, right after the Communist Revolution. And he's now, you know, 40, 45-year-old leader of a huge movement of Jews in a now atheistic country where religion is illegal. 
And he was hauled before a tribunal. And you know what courts must have looked like in that revolutionary time. <laughs> and he's hauled before a tribunal, and he's set in a chair, and there's a group of men at tables around him. And he's being accused of uh, so-called godly activities. <laughs> what a great accusation, you know. We should all be so accused of actual godly activities. And, you know, but he's on trial. And, and they're saying, you need to desist from such godly activities. And, and he very flatly says, no. And a man comes from behind the table, one of the uh, inquisitors, as it were, and it being the early days of the revolution, just pulls out a revolver and puts it to his head and says, uh, uh, Many a man has changed his mind looking down the barrel of this convincer, this persuader. And Reb Zalman's Rebbe, Reb Yosef Yitzhak, said, Only a man who has many gods to serve and only one world in which to serve them is scared of your persuader. But I, who have only one God to serve and many worlds in which to serve, I'm not frightened. Put the gun away. Well, somehow he made it through that encounter. <laughs> but I, I, I always think about that story like, oh, what nerve. But not just nerve. He must believe that. And so when we, when we talk about idolatry, that's just it. We often have many gods to serve and only one world to serve them in, which means we're running from altar to altar every minute. Love, sex, you know, food, anything that takes our attention in any given moment. And it takes us away from the unity. And so we're serving at many altars. But there are many worlds and only one God, one reality. So for me, that's the story about idolatry and us. It's like, what are the real idols for us? It's not the things of religion. <laughs> it's the things of daily life that are obscuring our view of the divinity that's present everywhere. Right, it's making me think of this, this little Hasidic teaching that an angry person makes an idol out of their own anger because everybody has to worship that anger to not set off the angry person. <laughs> yeah. So thank you both for that. Just to come into a close here, I'd, I'd like to ask what is maybe a difficult question, which is given this kind of shared lineage, is there a way to articulate a common goal and or path across followers of these different traditions? Hmm. That's a big question. Um, you know, I, I would say that what immediately comes to mind is what in the Sufi tradition is called the insan al-kamil or the, the completed or the perfected human being or the fully human being. And this idea that most of us are not most of the time truly human beings, that we're actually living subhuman lives. And that the goal of these paths, of the Abrahamic paths, and perhaps of all authentic spirituality, is the cultivation of our humanness. And in the Christian tradition, St. Paul talks about this as 
the cultivation of the fruits of the spirit, um, patience, peace, love, fidelity, etc. In the Sufi tradition, it's the the awakening of the divine names within ourselves and manifesting those names of God in a balanced way through our humanness. Uh, I remind myself that Jesus did not come to propagate the identity marker Christian. Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua, never heard the word Christian in his uh, earthly life. That title came later, but Jesus came rather to awaken hearts and transform lives. And in a similar way, the Prophet Muhammad, uh, he came to bring this path of Islam, which in the Quran is actually a a lowercase i word, Islam, which just means self-surrender to the divine. And it's the same root, that SLM root in Islam is in Salam, peace, and Salim, wholeness. And so Islam is the path of awakening, uh, surrender, peace, and wholeness. And in that respect, the Quran actually refers to students and prophets of previous revelations as Muslim. A Muslim is one on the path of Islam, the path of surrender. And so the Quran refers to Jesus and his disciples as Muslim. And so in that sense, the, the goal again isn't the propagation of an identity marketer, capital M Muslim or capital C Christian, but the cultivation of a human being who is who is surrendered, who is manifesting the fruits of the spirit and the names of God. Uh, so I think Often we can get hung up on the outer forms and identity labels and sociological markers. And I think those are all important for, they are important at a functional level for cultivating community. At a functional level, it's helpful to have labels, to have shared ritual, to have shared practice, etc. But that's all in service of the cultivation of our humanness. And that is ultimately something universal. Uh, There's a story told of an old Christian man coming to Mevlana Rumi and taking hand with him, Bayat, uh, being initiated as one of Mevlana's dervishes. And Mevlana allows him to remain a Christian. He says, you know, he's followed this Christian way his whole life. He doesn't want to leave his religion behind. Well, some of Mavlana's students begin complaining about this, and they're, you know, prodding Mavlana, like, are you going to get him to convert? Like, are you going to get him to actually become a Muslim? And Mavlana responds, why are you trying to convert the already converted? And so he sees conversion as that essential turning to God, not as the labels and identity markers. So in the Mevlavi tradition, it's sometimes said that the goal isn't conversion in the sense of from one religion to another, but rather completion, the completion of our humanness. And we've had teachers on this path say, on the Mevlavi path say, if you come to Mevlana a Jew, you will become a completed Jew. A Christian, you will become a completed Christian. A Muslim, you will become a completed Muslim. Um, There's a beautiful line in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, one of these texts found uh, in the 20th century from the early Christian tradition, in which Mary Magdalene says of Jesus, let us praise him for his greatness, for he has prepared us that we might become true human beings. And so there's again that sense of 
the completion of our humanness. And and I think it, in some sense, it's never completed as long as we're in these bodies in this world, but always completing, always unfolding. But that, in my mind, is the goal we strive for, to become gentle, gentled, humble, surrendered souls who are manifesting God's love. I'm happy with that and 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 don't have a great desire to add a lot more because you know in going that essential we avoid uh, you know the dialogue of of theology and the dialogue of theology is always an endpoint like there's nowhere to go from there uh if you talk about your conclusions well then you're just comparing conclusions and in any good dialogue, and, and here the dialogue is between these three traditions, you know, and we're talking about common, what is common and what is common way forward together, uh, then you have to go, as my teacher said, to the dialogue of de- devoutness is how he would put it. Not the dialogue of theology, the dialogue of devoutness. So, if we name the specifics, then maybe we separate again. So, I like coming back to this notion of the insan al-kamal, you know, the, the completed human being, the perfected human being. You know, what's so beautiful there is that, you know, there's a teaching that in pre-eternity, <laughs> you know, before creation, whatever that means before, you know, once you're talking about these things, in pre-eternity, God witnessed what we could be, what we could be, in all our possibility, in all our beautiful possibility, God witnessed the human uh, and, and said, boy, is that good. <laughs> and from that witness, we get creation. Now, this is the teaching, you know. Uh, and, and that's the hope that at some point we'll live up to what that that beautiful possibility uh, was, <laughs> to use such a word about pre-eternity. Um, and, and that's always the hope, That's and, and that possibility is always before us, to live into becoming what a human being can be. Uh, and I think that that's where our focus should be. Now, between our traditions... Um, there are nuanced versions of what that wholeness looks like. Um, maybe they complete one another. Um, but there's certainly complementary. Uh, I think that that's true. There's certainly complementary and do ultimately come together. But that's the goal, to complete the work of the human being, to become, you know, maybe... Perfected is a loaded word for us, but but wholeness has always been my personal goal, and 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 that's really the sense of completion uh, in these traditions to be whole. Well, thank you both. A difficult question that you both answered beautifully. So this has been just really lovely. Uh, there's so much that I was hoping to get into. You know that. We haven't, but it's just another excuse to maybe have you on another time, Matthew. And before we go, I would just like to offer some space for you to share something with us. Um, so if you do have anything, we'd love to hear. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, you know, the place for me where the traditions have 
Islam and Christianity dovetail is in the heart and in the practice of what the Christian tradition calls the prayer of the heart. So I think I would just invite us to enter for a few moments into that silent heart space. And then if Natanel might uh, lead us out of that space with a poem. So, so I invite you to just bring your attention for a moment to your breath. The heart in these two traditions is understood as an intertidal zone where we wash into God, God washes into us. Or we can't find a place anymore where I end and God begins. The heart is the threshold between worlds. And so just allowing awareness to rest into, into the breath and to come into the space of the heart. Dropping from mental center into heart spaciousness. And resting in that cave of the heart as you're writing a tunnel. Thank you. This is a poem from Ibn Arabi's Turjaman, his, his famous little collection of uh, love poems, poems of divine love. My heart embraces all. It is a pasture for gazelles, a cloister for monks, a temple for idols, a Kaaba for pilgrims. It is the tablets of the Torah, the very pages of the Quran. Mine is the religion of love. Wherever love's caravan turns, my faith and religion follow. Amin, amen, amen. Amin, amen, amen. Shout out to friend of the show, Tree Fort of Golden Turtle Sound for producing the intro and outro music and assisting with mixing and mastering. Be sure to check out his awesome music and hit up Golden Turtle Sound for any of your audio engineering needs.